0: Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello. And Garth Metcalf. Hello. And together we're going to explore problem solving during the first of many episodes on this particularly interesting theme. But first, Chris, what are you reading for?
1: hey what you reading for this week i have been reading something that i think is rather special but to introduce it i'm gonna have to maybe go around the houses just a tiny bit i've been writing something for a publication on scarborough's reading rope it's something i'm really excited about and just as pure coincidence i ordered a book an old book on amazon that someone had recommended for me And just as it had arrived through my door, literally as it arrived through my door, I'm sat on the Internet trying to find out the origin of Scarborough's Reading Rope, where it was first published. And I found out that it's first published in the Handbook of Early Literacy Research by Susan B. Newman and David K. Dickinson. And that's literally the book that had just come through my door. It was just a lovely little moment. And for someone who's into reading research in the way that I seem to be. If you're interested in a little bit of reading research history and you're interested in everything to do with early literacy, then I'd highly recommend it. It's a, you know, it's, It seems to be a really interesting read, though. I'm only about 10 or 20 percent of the way through it so far.
2: What about you, Gareth? What are you reading for? Well, I've been reading a really interesting book um, called The Obstacle is the Way by a guy called Ryan Holiday. And it it's really looks at stoic philosophy, specifically looking at, at difficulties that you could have and the way that they're interpreted. And I found that really fascinating and really um and really interesting, kind of changed my perspective on a lot of things. And it looks particularly at how when there is something like not making judgments over whether things are good or bad necessarily, which which we in, in our human nature are kind of naturally do a lot of the time. And and often when we look back on things when we think that event initially seemed to be a really bad thing we can often see the benefits in it and it's almost paying that forward which is really interesting and so um and again there's everything that applies to life I think you could apply it to to teaching as well but the idea that whether it's a a, what would seem like a difficult situation giving you an opportunity to show compassion to someone that you wouldn't have otherwise had or you know, that it helps you to learn to still your mind in all circumstances or... But being able to see in difficult circumstances the opportunity that exists has something that um, that um I've I found really, really interesting. So uh, The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. Kieran, let me throw it to you. What have you been reading for?
0: Has that one got a blue cover with like a sort
2: of ring on the front? Yes, I think it does, yes.
0: A, f- a friend of mine asked me to read that before... February 2020. So I've got that on my Kindle, and we were going to read it together and sort of talk about it, but we never actually get around to doing that because things sort of you know changed quite dramatically, didn't it? But yeah, so he he speaks very he's very into that kind of book and that kind of thinking, and he he says yeah, it's something I need to read. So maybe 2022 is the year for me to to get involved with
2: that. Highly recommend it.
0: Yeah, I as I do have a really old research paper on problem solving. <laughs> this one's in 1975 by Perlin Nesher and Eva Teubel, and it's verbal cues as an interfering factor in verbal problem solving. And basically they look at that relationship between literacy and mathematical sort of problem solving ability. The, the conclusions are really interesting, you know, and I think they probably seem like common sense now. But it's definitely one I want to go back to a few times just to see if I can really get under the skin of what's happening. But, you know, we we know that relationship is really quite important and certainly something we'll get to over the, the course of a few episodes. But I think yeah, verbal cues as an interfering factor in verbal problem solving, Yeah, really interesting read.
1: So as this is an episode about mathematics, once again, it's my privilege to take over for a little while the hosting role so that we can enjoy the mathematics mastery of messers mackle and metcalf i didn't rehearse that (laughs) (laughs) so our our question today um to start us off we're talking about problem solving so obviously the the, what we really must do and i think in some detail is to get to grips with what exactly is a problem in the context of mathematics and i suspect i'll throw that your way gareth
2: yeah, I'm sure here there are many definitions of problem solving. What an enormous topic um, to cover, and and my definition would would look something like this: it it it's a question or a task where the path to find the answer or to respond to the challenge is something that needs to be defined by the child. It isn't laid out for them, and and of course that can encompass such a wide range of different tasks or questions. So often when we think about problem solving, or, or what we probably experience a lot as problem solving, is worded questions, um, because there we have an ill-defined route to find an answer. But of course, there's so many different, different things that problem solving could encompass. It, it might be looking at solving some kind of a real world issue. So, so let's say uh, problem solving could be there are 14 people going camping. How could we organise ourselves? And of course, there's lots of different solutions there, but probably an ill-defined route to find the, the answer or, or questions with different possible answers or multi-step questions. But so many different forms of questions. But I think that if children have to define the route through, then it becomes a what I would see as a problem solving task. I think
0: that's brilliant, because Chris has been asking me all week, you know, what is a problem? What what do we mean by problem solving? And that... um... That ill-defined route, I think, encompasses all the different things that we've discussed, you know, sort of offline.
1: Effectively, I was trying to sum up, in the most general terms, what made a problem a problem. And I was thinking about the idea of, in some cases, it's just maths that children are very much familiar with, but in a in context, it's just like so. When we talk about word problems, it's just mathematics that they've that's now been contextualised. So even if they now need to define the route through the problem. The only reason they need to define that route for the problem isn't because they're in any way unfamiliar with the mathematics they're just. unfamiliar with that particular context, so they need to s- scrape away the superficial elements of the context and get down to the structure, we also suggested the idea, that it might be just rare combinations of mathematics so actually. Um, or unfamiliar combinations of mathematics so taking prime numbers and putting them into a venn diagram they might be entirely sorry um prime numbers and even numbers and putting them into a venn diagram they might be completely familiar with prime numbers and um even numbers and venn diagrams but they've never seen them combined before and that makes it a problem in some way and the other one i mentioned was just the extension of known mathematics beyond familiar situations but I think in some ways that kind of overlaps somewhat with the first and the second. So yeah, it was still quite loosely, quite loosely defined.
0: Yeah, because we were talking about that spatial element that we, that we discussed, because you're saying, is this a problem if you've got a Venn diagram? You know, I think there's a certain amount of organisation, and I think it's spatial organisation, where you have to realise the sort of the, the parameters of the situation in which you're working, and you're arranging things which don't necessarily exist in any sort of tangible way and and what i'm trying to explain how would how would we generalize that as a as a problem type is it some sort of spatial reasoning problem is that is that the best way to define it or are we saying spatial reasoning is something slightly different
1: if i'm honest i think the interesting thing is that here is that the most satisfying explanations of problem solving that i've come across have been ones that are very very similar to if not borderline identical to what Gareth said so this idea of an unfamiliar um, an unfamiliar way through the situation I think it's uh, Tom Gary that says um this idea that in fact I've got it written down here um uh, he defines a problem in his really good book Mastery in Primary Mathematics a question where pupils don't immediately recognise a tried and tested method for finding the solution, which I think mirrors a great deal of the really good answer that Gareth gave. What I'm interested in here then, if that is how we're defining a problem, and I I think that contains what you're talking about, Kieran, in terms of, you know, if you start talking about problems that involve spatial awareness, one of the things that that brings in is just this unfamiliar situation or this unfamiliar application of mathematics in another form, because as soon as you're required to think about, say, prime numbers in a Venn diagram, you're thinking about something that doesn't usually have that obvious spatial element, once you've understood it in abstract terms, in a spatial way. I guess the thing I'm most interested in is this question. To what extent has the dichotomy of routine problem solving versus non-routine problem solving, which I believe appears in the national curriculum, Muddied the water in an unhelpful way. I asked that because I would say that both Tom Gary's definition and your definition, Gareth, involve the idea of problem solving as what I would, unless I'm mistaken, consider to just be non routine. Because if it's routine, by definition, children can plot their way through. And if they can't plot their way through, then we're saying that that's a problem. Is there such a thing as a
2: routine problem? I mean, my thought on that would be that would depend on the individual experience of the child. So for the same question, I would say for one child could become could be routine, whereas another it might be non routine. So so if I was looking at a question that involved the structure of how many combinations of outfits can be made or meals can be ordered, then I guess for, for, for in one child's lived experience that could become routine if they have that familiarity with the context. And um, so you, you could say that it might fall under the definition of this is a problem solving question, but whether a child experiences a problem solving question, uh, I, I would say would, would be defined by how familiar they are with that as a, as, a, as a context and kind of whether that does involve that interpretation. And to some extent, that might also include how that's been delivered to them.
1: Yeah, that makes total sense to me. It's just I, I love this idea of you could present a certain bit of mathematics Um, a, a particular question say and for one child it is genuinely a problem because they haven't experienced anything like it before say and have no way of finding immediately they have no immediate knowledge of how to find their way through the problem whereas another child who may have like you say life experience of something similar or just the mathematical classroom experience of something like that they know their way through, so it isn't a problem for them. But I guess the same question arises, if we're then saying, okay, it's thus a problem for this, this person, and not a problem for the other, does that make the routine, non-routine dichotomy unnecessary? I would assume that one of the reasons this has come about is because of just the, the looseness of the language around the word problem, in that in some cases, I've seen problem just defined as a question that requires an answer, you know, so seven plus five can be a problem. And even even if the child knows seven plus five, and it's a, you know, a mathematical fact that they've uh, memorized to the point of fluency. So I guess it doesn't really matter hugely to our conversation, as long as those at home, and again, you can call me out on this and say I'm wrong, but as long as those at home recognize that there are these different definitions of problem it's worth knowing the differences between them so that we can make sure that we're talking about problems in the same way and that for the purposes of this episode we're thinking of a problem as something where the children where the child in question doesn't yet have a tried and tested method of finding their way through and thus needs to define their own journey through the question at hand does that sound a fair summation
0: yeah, I, I think it's, it's definitely worth addressing because in the back of my mind, I've always got the fact that there is a reasonably large school of thought which considers my approach to problem solving as somewhat reductive, you know, and that somehow the more unfamiliar a child is with a situation and the more unique a situation appears to be, the more genuine the mathematical experience. And when I'm looking at problems, you know, exactly like Jarrett says, I'm basically trying to turn what are seemingly non-routine and unique structures into routine problems, whereby it's really only the superficial features of the problem that are unique to the pupil. And underneath, you know, those big ideas Garth was talking about last time. I mean, if I can give an example, the handshake investigation, you know, we can dress that up in many, many different ways. You know, it could be how many times do the teams in the Premier League play each other in a given season? How many games will there be all season? It's the same as how many handshakes if you've got 20 people in a room and everybody shakes hands once. You know, the, the underlying mathematical structure, you're still going to end up with a triangular number of handshakes or football games. It might seem completely different, but I'm always focusing people's attention on that structure. Um, but I'm always quite worried because I know that it's not generally accepted across the board that that is the the sort of right thing to do Um, and I was was actually thinking about word problems and how word problems get a particularly bad reputation as if they're the I don't know the fourth in line to the throne of of problem solving and you know it's very much a case of that's what the least equipped mathematics teachers sort of use as the vehicle for problem solving in their classes. But actually I was looking at a paper, Word Problems, a review of linguistic and numerical factors contributing to their difficulty, and, and whether the paper is, is correct in what it surmises at the end. When they're looking at why problems are pro- or worded problems are difficult, they look at three branches, linguistic factors, mathematical factors, and then general factors. And within those, you've got things like structure, semantics, so those would be the linguistic factors. And you've got the properties of the numbers, the required operations, the solution strategy, the relevance of the information, the numerical processes. Then in general, you've got skills and social aspects, categorization, solution strategies, and then pedagogical factors and socio-mathematical factors. And the list keeps going on and on. They're not at all easy to, you know, we might make it look easy because we've gotten to the point where as a profession, we're reasonably proficient in supporting pupils and being able to solve these sort of contextual problems. And I think it helps that context is really beneficial at our phase. You know, the fact that when we're sort of delivering problems, they normally come with some sort of story that will be sort of at least halfway meaningful to our pupils. But I don't think we should underestimate just how important word problems are, because I don't think you get to the abstract mathematics of further mathematics without doing what we do
2: really, really well. The other thing that I think is worth mentioning coming to look at these routine and non-routine problem solving might be if it is a normal thing that children experience and inter- interspersed different forms of structures of questions within, within the kind of, let's say, the worded questions they experience, then, then those worded questions probably become problem solving. And, and I guess what I really I mean is if I've been learning about multiplication and then I know that the question I'm going to do will be a multiplication task package in a word problem then perhaps it isn't a problem-solving task in to the same measure as if children are familiar with the idea that they might be interspersed with different kinds of problem-solving tasks so um or, or structures of questions i should probably say so like an example that i would uh, that i would often give that i think is is a nice one is for a question that would get children thinking about whether i'm looking at additive or multiplicative reasoning might be let's say adam is three years old tom is seven years old when adam is 15 years old how old will tom be and the the clue it might the, the numbers might suggest that this will be multiplicative reasoning and we might see the relationship between three and 15 the children might think i, I need to multiply by five and actually if we have questions like that interspersed where in a where, where children have been learning multiplication and they have to realize Actually, this is additive reasoning here, but this other context is multiplicative reasoning. Then those other tasks become problem solving tasks rather than simply we've been looking at multiplication. And I'm just going to I I know that this is a worded question where I'll apply that skill. And so I think that having that as a as a routine behavior for a teacher to think about how I intersperse those different kinds of tasks without necessarily needing to make the number range challenging that children are operating within. I I think is a is a kind of big thing as well.
1: I think that brings quite nicely onto our second question: To what extent should problem solving feature in lessons or, or across a learning sequence, or dare I say, across a curriculum? So interpret this question as you see fit. In short, how much problem solving is this? Something that is every lesson is it an integrated part of every bit of maths teaching that you do, or are there? separations are there periods of time where you are working on getting fluent with a particular method or a particular set of facts how does it work in your ideal maths curriculum
0: I think there are two layers to this answer I think if you're a maths lead and you are trying to raise the standard of mathematics education in your school I think the answer is that you are always trying to include as much as possible problem solving in your lessons because I think where the quality of education pupils receive is sort of less than what we'd hope and less than what pupils might deserve. I think you'll often find the situation, the problem solving is reserved for those pupils who could probably solve the problems in the first place. And so I think we need to set our expectations. You know, there's the John Mason quote, if if you're not reasoning, you're not doing mathematics. And I think that's where you pitch it. So on the first level, particularly as a subject leader who's trying to inspire their staff to live out the vision that they have for mathematics in their school. I think it's all the all the time. You know, we, we get this fed the whole way across our curriculum. On the second level, in reality, and I was actually one of my maths leads um, asked me about this when I was taking him around one of my other schools. And he says, Cian, you always say it. we're always doing problem solving. It's not a maths lesson if you're not doing reason and you're not, you're, and you're not problem solving. But I had said that I was perfectly happy with pupils, like you have talked about before, Chris, finding out the what before we explored the why, because I knew that the curriculum was designed in such a way that it wouldn't be too long before they were going to see the mathematics in context and before they were going to be applying that mathematics to increasingly abstract contexts. So I think on that second level, having mapped out when you think you're going to get the most from that kind of lesson or that kind of experience for your pupils, then you can very happily have days that are just focused on, you know, the, on the structures devoid of context or on the big ideas on their own because you may, it may be that the pupils need smaller steps to get to where you want them to be. So so I think, yeah, our, our aim is that it features as much as possible, but in reality, a well sequenced curriculum might account for the fact that some things need to be known before they can be understood and applied.
2: I think I'll probably repeat a lot of what Kieran's just said then, because I was, you know, I've had so many conversations with people in the last fortnight on this topic, and this idea that often problem solving, we, we find it's the children that can already answer those questions anyway that do them and is a it should problem solving be part of every lesson and is problem solving part of every lesson I think often the answer to that would be that problem solving is often part of a lesson for some children but if we look at this through the lens of a child's experience there may be some children who experience very little problem solving in their experience of mathematics and that is something that I think we all must be really passionate to drive towards that all children have consistent opportunities for problem solving. And I think it's easy to get tied up in, well, what does it look like in each day, in each lesson? Like, we should see problem solving in each lesson. And and I guess that I I would think about this, thinking over the course of time, we want children to have rich experiences and and a lot of exposure to problem solving. And for that to be true for all children as well. So I, I think that big challenge is actually how do we get all children exposed to problem solving consistently and something that, that i guess that lends me to to think about is often problem solving we would say as or, or we might or children might experience as the difficult bit and that's the thing that we do later or, or that some children get to because it's harder and actually how do we make because how do we make problem solving accessible how do we give children high success in problem solving uh, initially so it can actually be something that all children experience not as just being something that is an application that some children get to and so many teachers have talked to me and um and and school leaders have talked to me uh, in the in the last few weeks actually about this issue that some children experience a rich have rich experience of mathematics and experience a lot of problem solving but how do we ensure that that that's a shared experience for all children Irrespective of their current attainment,
1: I think that's kind of what I'm really interested in. In in practical terms, how do we make that happen? Or I'm sure there are a whole variety of ways to structure a curriculum in order to make that happen. And I'm interested in exploring possible variations of that. Something that kind of I think ties together your both of your answers, and I think raises a question related to both of your answers. Gareth, you were talking about how we how can we make this? How can we make problem solving? accessible in particular with reference to how can we make it I don't want to say it's obviously challenging but how can we make it something that everyone has a point of ingress with and you were saying Kieran about the idea of we should always be problem solving to some extent or at least that's the the ideal that it should be always coming back to problem solving I think the question this raises is I've heard bits and pieces about the idea of um, children should be really fluent and confident with a, a, a bit of mathematics the structure if you will um, before long before in some cases they come to um, solve problems with it I've heard figures bandied around around the idea of say ideally a couple of years worth of maturation related to that bit of mathematics before they start to genuinely solve problems with it the first question linked to that is how does that work then? How do we, do we structure a curriculum so that the problems children are seeing come much later than the mathematics that are in those problems? And yeah, do we do that? Or do we just say, okay, we're learning about prime numbers at the moment. I want to do some problem solving bits with prime numbers as we are learning it. Which, which do you, is there an easy answer to that? Or which side of the fence do you fall on?
2: this is such an important question and i think it's really it's 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 really important that we've all, that in a school that we have a vision for actually how this how this works um and this is our approach to to developing children as problem solvers and to me it's thinking where where do we want challenge to come from in a task we can't have challenge coming from too many places for all children to be able to access problem solving so it, it might be it, whether it's the number range that's used, or, or like you say, kind of applying previously embedded mathematics within the problem, and, and to me, it's also around. Often, if I was looking at planning a lesson, I perhaps used to think chronologically: we'll start with this, we'll go to here, we'll move to there. When I'm looking at, um, at effective pedagogy around problem solving, I'll often think, well, this is the, this is the question I want children to be able to have high success with, or I want children to grapple with later in the lesson, and it's almost then having the skill to deconstruct actually how do I how do I work back from that how do I build up to that giving children related challenges where is the load coming from in this task and what are the precursor activities that I can provide that will lessen the load when children get here and that's something that I think needs a lot of practice needs something you know working around it might be something that as part of cpd programs we we look at at working on those uh, on those sequences together but i i think the danger is that the the direct teaching or or the modeling comes in other parts of mathematics and not actually in the problem solving and i think actually when it comes to problem solving it's about well i want children um with, with particular kinds of problem solvers i think i want children to be here how do i deconstruct that How do I give children initial success? Now, again, that might look slightly differently if I was doing a worded question than if I was doing another kind of task. But I think the principle I would always work from is how do I deconstruct this? How do I break the skills down or how in other ways do I give children high initial success on related tasks? working backwards from the task that that i hope that they'll have success in and i think it's a really complex thing to work on so a, a great thing to work on with with other colleagues i guess
1: it's going to sound unfair almost pinning you down a little bit if for example a colleague that you were working with said teaching prime numbers across these two or three lessons i'm going to do a bit of problem solving using prime numbers this is the first time they've seen prime numbers And across these two or three lessons, I am going to introduce a little bit of problem solving that involves that knowledge. Using all of the scaffolding you've described, would you say, yeah, that's cool. Got no problem with that. Or would you say, probably want to save the problem
2: solving with prime numbers till a later date? I would probably say saving the problem solving with prime numbers till a later date. If if we're looking at all children having success with problem solving and children are actually still grappling with that as a concept that that would be something where the way that I would see that working in a sequence in a sequence of lessons would probably be that the child um that, that children are grappling with problems with um, prime numbers and then some children whose attainment is higher get to the problem solving with prime numbers and that's where I feel like the um, we, we don't all have the access to the problem solving. Now, in that instance, it might be that we explore prime numbers. I I would be looking, where where I'm looking at problem solving, I would think I I would almost need to plan backwards and think, right, well, these are the tasks that I want to introduce. I need to think carefully about where they'll fit within sequences of lessons and then how I'll build up to those problem solving experiences. So
1: presumably, because you're doing the prime number problem solving in later lessons, that leaves you with kind of two options or in terms of organization you're either doing prime number problem solving in the lessons kind of later on in the curriculum that use prime numbers in some way or you're making or perhaps and or you're making some specific time in your curriculum for problem solving more generally say six months later or two years later whatever it is where you say you know what i know i know they're confident with prime numbers now we're going to do some problems amongst other ones that involve prime numbers would either of those options be something you would advocate or think were a decent way to organize a curriculum
2: if we map that out in advance and and that's given thought to by you know subject leadership and someone with an overview i don't think that's that's a thing for a a a decision that a class teacher should have to be making on a weekly basis for sure um and i think that that is excellence in curriculum design but like I say, it, it, that would be something where I, th- I think it's useful if that's mapped out, you know, prior to a teacher having to make decisions like that.
0: What, what I've read on bedded retrieval sort of suggests that you get a lot more bang for your buck when you have that kind of system in place where you are, like Arthur, told earlier on, you know, I think the example that um, Craig Barton might give is, you know, you learn about Pythagoras' theorem and then you've got five, or maybe it's more chord. you've got five questions with triangles, but they're not all, Pythagoras, that you're going to encounter. And that, that transfers to, to primary. You know, you could give five questions with a triangle and have completely different ideas explored. And so I think, yeah, if you are forward thinking in terms of your curriculum design, you can map out when that should happen, ideally, for your teachers. Like, as you guys are talking, I'm thinking, okay, the minimum standard or expectation for the national curriculum is that all pupils are given the chance to sort of be fluent, reason, and problem solve. At the very heart of whatever we do, we need to accept that this is the minimum benchmark, you know, and that should be our default way to pitch what we do. But I think it's worth considering what it is we are hoping to gain from the inclusion of problems in our lessons, because I think there's a certain amount of mimicry. You know, you're talking about maturation and the need to last over, you know, leave two years before you're truly problem solving. Well, it may be that you're providing pupils with an experience of the context of the problem with the types of problems that you might experience when working with prime numbers and learning about prime numbers. But whether you could genuinely hand on heart, you know, say that they've learned how to solve problems involving that mathematical content, you're probably going to need to wait at least two months before you can find out if they've remembered it. So I think for me, you try and make it a part of what you do and i know we'll get to making a central practice in a bit but you're almost thinking on two levels you know because is it a case of when we get to a similar topic two years later the mathematical difficulty seems to be low but the problem difficulty is high because we've gone back to prime numbers but we've got this really complex problem system and then that's when you really get the you know the benefit because it should be at that point something the pupils no one understand and so i think you're almost thinking you know, why are we setting these problems in class and pupils being able to independently solve you know with minimal support might not be the the initial reason but we could in the future reduce the mathematical difficulty and increase the the problem difficulty
1: I think the interesting thing here is um, I like what Gareth said there as well previously about the idea of this being effectively the responsibility of your mathematics coordinator or curriculum lead in terms of plotting this out. When you were talking there, Kieran, about the idea of uh, method selection, I think Martin Court, you're right, has talked about this in the past where you're saying, you know, we're doing 10, 10 questions on this, say... And five of them are going to relate to the thing we've just learned and a few of them are going to be on stuff we've done in the past. And it might even be that that stuff we've done on the past, if it's far enough back, will be what we've defined as problems. I think the challenge for a mathematics coordinator or curriculum lead there is that to forward plan to that extent so that you're saying, okay, in this group of lessons or in this lesson, do this stuff from the stuff that's come previously assuming we're not placing this burden on individual teachers that requires a level of oversight and detail in the planning of a curriculum that goes down to the very precise lesson by lesson basis to the point where you're saying to teachers, you know, if you're, you know, you're this when you do your prime numbers topic, when you do this lesson and you're doing questions like these make sure to drop in something on prime numbers, something on lowest common multiple something on whatever it might be. I'm not certain of the extent to which that is, at least at a primary level, um, an achievable aspiration for an individual school. I definitely think it's an achievable thing for um, a textbook that a group of people would spend years putting together. Um, But on an individual school level, I think that'd be a massive challenge. If I may, just to talk about, we've talked about some really, what I like to think are really ideal circumstances for problem solving. I'll be brutally honest and spell out what I've, tried to put together at my school to guarantee at least a certain level of problem solving for every child and I, I really like the idea of you guys picking the spots off it because I think that would be quite valuable to others um, painful for me no doubt but valuable to others so effectively the way the curriculum I use and works is that when children are learning about a given thing keep going back to prime numbers and might as well stick with it let's say children are learning about prime numbers part of that sequence will ideally look at problems from previous maths but it isn't guaranteed that that's going to be the case but the idea while that sequence of learning about prime numbers and say factors and then prime numbers is developing there'll be some lots of reasoning involved little bits and pieces where we begin to maybe play with the mathematics and see where it might fit in certain problems and then towards the end of a unit or the end of a sequence of lessons that has got prime numbers factors other things in prime numbers factors etc is then involved in some problems on the assumption that children have become relatively fluent in using that but the all of the other aspects of mathematics that are involved in it are from much earlier on so thinking about what you said gareth about low like making sure that that there aren't too many areas of challenge to make something completely inaccessible it might be the case that if we're looking at something in year four and it's a problem solving activity with um, prime numbers that the actual other elements of mathematics that they need to use are maybe at a year three or a year two level so it's stuff that kids are really really familiar with now from our discussion i think yeah no that sounds like a very basic way of ensuring that all children get a, pr- a problem solving diet and not just like you say gareth the most um highest attaining that all get some problem solving what improvements would you suggest to that and or, or, or dare i say just complete alternatives
2: i mean i, I think that's it's really interesting the point you raise and, and the example that you give uh, around uh, prime numbers and and so kind of let me let me pick up on that one I think that if we look at the mathematics curriculum as as all the small pieces, the the very many small pieces and topics that that build up maths curriculum. um, And we're looking at how do we embed problem solving in each of those elements, then it does make it sound like fitting problem solving in is extremely complex. So, so it, it might be that in that instance, we, we think, right, we'll problem solve with prime numbers in, in two years' time when children have, have embedded that idea. If I was looking at a a unit on, um, on multiplication and division, then it might be that I can see w- with more clarity, well, this is how I can, at this point in the sequence of lessons I'm going to build in, a, a problem solving task that involves multiplicative reasoning. And actually, well, whilst we've been calculating with numbers in this range, I'll problem solve with numbers in, in that range. And that would perhaps be a, a kind of an easy way of being able to break that down. So, so like children might, you know, when we're learning about place value, we might be um be able to count numbers up to a, a higher quantity, then we'll construct numbers with, and we'll position numbers on a number line in a much smaller range. Then, then we'll build numbers with tens of ones. In a similar way, I might be looking in problem solving, you know, in, in bigger kind of, in, in bigger blocks rather than in individual topics like like prime numbers of of just the kind of, the, the, the simple ways we can say, right, in this unit and, and take this unit, it, problem solving might not fit as naturally just in this small piece, but th- th- these are the kind of the ways that we'll build in the problem solving and just having that principle that I, I will... Just consider where I minimize the difficulty, if if that does answer your question at all.
1: It does. And it's actually somewhat reassuring because I dare say, despite me talking about, you know, the minutiae of factors and prime numbers, when children come to do some problem solving, and like I say, little bits and pieces here or there will be embedded all the time, but when they come to say a problem-solving lesson where we set time aside to look at a range of problems, it certainly isn't the case, I don't think, from the curriculum I've tried to Put together um, with the help of lots of resources, that children will do a bit of problem solving with everything. It, it might be that we're looking at the kind of the grander scope of a topic or of a, of a sequence of lessons and using some aspects of it, the things that maybe most lend themselves to problem solving. I would, um, no, I'd be claiming things that weren't true if I was suggesting that children solved problems using every little chunk of the maths curriculum. Um, at my school.
0: If I could just jump back to you, you, sort of say, Chris, you know, you wouldn't put the burden of sequencing when material is revisited on individual teachers. But I think if you've got a really well sequenced curriculum, you know, and everybody knows my preferences for high quality textbooks, I do think you free up time to focus on this kind of cognitively challenging but also extremely worthwhile endeavor because if I think about the things I ask my teachers to focus on when they're planning, they're not not planning what they're going to teach. They're not planning the sequence and they're certainly, they're not, to an extent, they're not choosing many of the representations or the questions, you know, and, and things like variation are built into the sequencing. So what they're focusing their attention on is how they can provide access for all pupils, what the underlying mathematics is and how it connects with everything else. And then how they're going to challenge all pupils. So those are the three things that dominate our conversations. And I think if you're able to carve out time with at least one other person, you know, much easier in a three-formatory school than in a single formatory school, then I think over time you can build up a bank and an understanding of the curriculum. You know, ultimately the maths lead will know what happens in our and how that feeds towards what happens in six. But I do think teachers, you know, in my ideal model that I've mentioned before, where you spend three years in year three, you spend three years in year five, you almost know what's come before. And you think, right, okay, I'm going to use that. And that type of task becomes more natural and more readily undertaken. You know, so so I think I think it is possible. I think it takes circumstances that aren't necessarily default for it to be possible, but yeah, but I think it's worth saying, because I do think that it's a valuable use of our teacher's time, if the conditions
2: are right. And in terms of using the teacher's time as well, I often find that, we, if we just look at the, the you know, where, where we build our curriculum from, we'll often find the problem-solving tasks that children will experience, so if you're using an um, X scheme, and, and there'll be a problem-solving task, and let's say we just work from that task. And, and I think that the key thing is we can actually look at that task and, and, and it's already defined for us that this is what we want the children to be able to do. And it's how, how do we work backwards and deconstruct that so that we give children success as, as, as this is the end point? That's the thing that I find, we'll say there isn't clarity on, that, that, that needs the exploration. It's a really valuable investment in teachers' time. How do we take a task and, and be able to put ourselves... In the shoes of the child and understand these are all the reasons that they won't currently be able to access that how can i deconstruct that how can i build all the skills so that when when children are there they have the tools to be able to break that down
0: i think there's a lot to be said for the way you write your problems Garth, in the fact that there will be instances when pupils have encountered a certain problem type but with slightly novel mathematics I don't know if, I'm, if that's the right way to articulate it. But for instance, you know, the how many ways structure can be applied in many, many different circumstances. And when you're talking about reducing load and what pupils are paying attention to, I think it still qualifies as a problem because they won't be entirely certain what to do. But I think there's a, a certain level of familiarity that allows them to, like you said, be successful with the maths. I don't know, I, have I interpreted your intentions
2: correctly, Garth? Yeah, definitely. Because yeah, because I, I think sorry, my voice going there. Yes, definitely. Because I think that if you have the similar structures that children are familiar with with seeing, then it's like you can just spend more time focusing on the actual mathematics of of that particular task rather than familiarizing children with a structure. And how many ways is often so. I, so I include that in my reasoning resources uh, because it is almost that bridge into problem solving, and it's a familiar structure. That you can manifest right through, right across the age group. So I think that that is one really valuable outworking of problem solving.
1: And I think we've quite naturally transitioned into the final question: exactly how can we best embed problem solving into teaching? Um, Obviously, this is something that we've already talked about a lot in the podcast. So what I'd like to do is maybe take a apply a provocative spin on it. I think there are two ends of a spectrum when it comes to the way that I've seen problem solving and it being taught described. I've seen it described as we want children to understand the underlying mathematics, the structure, if you will. And once they have that, we then need to model problem types. We need children to see a variety of those problem types, um, familiarize themselves with them so that they become apt Um, sorry adept I should say at solving those kind of problems I'd say that's one end of of a spectrum I've seen defined I've also seen defined another end of the spectrum where people are thinking about problem solving almost as a mindset thing or an attitude thing in which children I won't go as far as to say necessarily they need to develop actually no, I will where children need to develop some generic skills effectively so at the other end of the spectrum might be those that say that alongside of course knowing all the stuff that they need to know, children need to have experience of conjecturing, specialising, generalising and reflecting to use, I think, John Mason's set of, I would say, generic skills. Where do you fit on that spectrum? Is it a spectrum? Have I defined it incorrectly? Is it? Is there a dichotomy there? I, I feel like there is. I do feel like there are certain people that want to say children need to deal with problems and be exposed to problems where they haven't seen it modelled before and they need to do that in order to kind of gain the confidence to tackle them themselves. And those that say, why are you giving children a problem if they've never seen anything like it modeled before?
2: I think it's, a, it's just an absolutely fascinating question. And the, the, the thing that I would say is I think that there is wh- whether it is entirely a, a spectrum, you know, for a linear spectrum from left to right, if you like. I don't know if, if that entirely encapsulates the reality I think there's truth in all of those perspectives. I think one of the dangers in problem solving is is that we can often just see what children can, going back to what Kieran had mentioned before, we can just see what children can already do or, or, or are currently unable to do. So I think that it is very important that children are given exposure to a range of different problem solving types. So they have lots of different frames of reference. And that may not be the same thing as almost teaching them this is the structure and I'll show you very very similar structures and now you go and do a structure that is essentially the same so I, I think that the kind of considering the kind of variation that children experience the different problem solving tasks is 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 really important and it's probably important that children have a range of those different experiences but if we're looking for children to be able to um you know to persevere on what for them are very unfamiliar uh, for a very unfamiliar problem Um, i think we have to we have to be aware of how is it do do children have the capacity to have success there so probably the grounding is that they have been exposed to enough kinds of problems and being opened up to the thought process of an expert problem solver so that they can come to a, a more of a novel problem solving task with a broad range of experiences as a problem solver and then we can, we can kind of have more breadth to how we can apply those skills. I remember reading, uh, reading a book and it was talking about how th- that we, we can see two ends of a spectrum. Th- this, this answer will be very incoherent. It'll take me a long time to articulate and I might forget what I'm saying, uh, but look, give, me, give me a go and we'll see what we get. It was saying that, like, that what, we, what we could see as a continuum is, is being very, very based in the practicality of a, uh, of, a, of a challenge and then having great imagination. And they could be seen as two opposing ends of a spectrum, this thing of being very grounded in reality and having the capacity to be highly imaginative. They could be seen as two polar opposites. But actually, in, 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 in having kind of great creativity, it's almost that the necessity is that we can exist at both ends of that spectrum. That they aren't necessarily opposites, but it is possible to, to be both very grounded in reality, in reality and being very creative. And I think maybe there's an analogy there in problem solving in that um, we can both give children a broad range of experiences of problem solving whilst also having the expect, the hope and the expectation that they can approach what will for them be very novel problems and then have relative success.
0: I think the dangerous thing with the spectrum is that quite often, where problem solving isn't understood, it can seem as if we want to give people a novel context, and then off they go. And that's, it's the, it's the bit that makes mathematics seem magical. Like you say, Gareth, you know, this, you know, we, we haven't really understood the, like the, the creativity and the, and the knowledge. Because whenever I'm looking at, you know, in, in one of your books, Garth, you've got the three consecutive numbers problem. And in thinking about primary mathematics, I look at that and take them on the roadmap from pattern spotting to what I would consider sufficient proof. And the key thing about that kind of process and moving from this initial spotting of a pattern towards being able to generalize is a lot of hard work. You know, you'll go from pattern spotting to conjecture, which is built on uncertainty, non-proof arguments, and then eventually proof. But what you've got to do in that situation is you've got to add many, many cases and divide them by three. So you're using mathematics that you know to work towards this point where you can express you know and they're not going to use the formula, our pupils, you know, not very often. I've certainly never seen anyone do it naturally, but I think I've demonstrated that you can with Numicon show that with the redistribution of one more than n to the one less than n, you end up with 3n. And it's the fact that that kind of testing and the rigorous testing of many, many cases that allows us to get to the point where we can generalize because either we will find a mathematical truth or we will have tested so many cases that it's very unlikely that this is not true in all instances. You know, and I think that's, what, that's what's dangerous about the dichotomy is the appearance of, off they go, magically solve this mathematics, you know, magically divine these truths when actually it's a whole lot of hard work using what you already have learned. To get to that point, you know. So I think I'm I'm just echoing really what Yarn said, but I think for me, there shouldn't be polar extremes. The whole picture should come together quite nicely if you are approaching problem solving in my ideal world. But I do know I do accept that I am talking in this
1: ideal. I guess the question I have beyond that then, and it's a question that will kind of reveal my preferences or at least one of my preferences when it comes to problem solving do you think that there are any circumstances even occasional where it can be valuable for children to sit down with a problem that they're encouraged to toy with and play with and get some of the way there and then ultimately fail be shown the way through it and then try a similar problem and go oh yeah okay I I I see that now that that's interesting is there value in that or under all circumstances are we thinking this problem here is one that
2: I'm pretty sure that the class have a really good chance of success with I think there is value and I, and I think it's like the, the the beauty of mathematics comes I, I feel when we are a, and are comfortable in going into that place of exploring novel problems and being comfortable with the the emotional experience that, that 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 i have in in that in that instance and i think one thing that 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 i think when we do that it, it, when we're teaching is actually knowing when it's then appropriate to intervene and being able to read that situation as well and kind of valuing that emotional response and i, and I think part of that is actually recognizing the the physical emotions that children experience at those times whether that is the kind of the the excitement or the feelings of threat and maybe being able to articulate well what that feels like for a child at that at that time and making them comfortable with that with the emotions of problem solving but then also of course knowing that we want children if we want children to understand the structure it might be that we need to interject at those at those times and be sensitive to what what, when that is and how we can move children forward or how is it that we uncover the thinking of an expert problem solver and it might be that children have persevered and that I actually need to show them the solution so they can then apply that to another instance so uh, you wouldn't want children's overall experience of problems their consistent experience of problem solving to be that but I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing to happen in a child's journey so I, I think that's particularly useful with those pupils
0: who find mathematics relatively easy on the surface and are able to get the answers quite quite quickly and are used to getting the answers quite quickly. And so I will always try and demonstrate when I'm in classes setting up a sufficiently meaty problem for those pupils that I know will take them several days to get anywhere near to the solution. And I know they will struggle but in that particular instance, I want them to struggle because I want them to see that mathematics is this um, this worthwhile endeavor. At the same time, like you said, Gareth, I will come back and I will explicitly demonstrate to them where they are in my roadmap. So, okay, right? At the minute, we are demonstrating in a certain number of cases. Say, for instance, they've tested out you know, two-digit numbers, three-digit numbers. Or, for instance, if they're doing the 1,089, problem and we look okay well what if we do this with um, four digit numbers what do you expect to happen and I'm jumping on Johnny Hall's great maths course um, on the CPD college because he looks at how we can do this in multi-based and things and I think we allow them to go through the hard work and then we come in and then we can set a similar problem and um, you know if I think about the example I gave where I talked about the addition of three consecutive numbers Well, again, in Gerard's book, you've got the addition of two consecutive numbers. So the problem and the steps you're going through are similar. But the outcome is slightly different. You know, you can generalize that in a different way. And so, yeah, to answer your question, Chris, I think there's huge value. And it's about choosing when it's most appropriate. But definitely it's something I'm always pushing in terms of I don't want to give these guys something for 20 minutes to hold their attention. I want to give them really, really substantial mathematics. You know, and my go-to is Garth's work and enrich because I don't think you could find two richer sources of them sort of really fantastic and meaty problems.
1: Yeah, heaven forfend that I answer my own question, but you know what, I am going to do it. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with both of you. I do think there is value in some exploration of problems where we kind of suspect that children are going to ultimately at least at first fail because we want to change attitudes as much as we want children to learn mathematics and the the, the kind of the the substantive knowledge of mathematics and the, and the, the skills of mathematics we also want them to be able to deal with situations where they don't get the answer immediately and where they either need to come back to it or need to plug away with it or need to seek advice. I think these are valuable things. I think you're spot on, Kieran, with the idea of, and I think you said the same thing, Gareth, about finding when and where these kind of challenges are most appropriate. I've worked with classes who are very turned off from mathematics and desperately needed experiences of success where I would not have dreamed of, at least at first, presenting them with these kind of, well, let's see how you fail problems, because that wasn't right for them. Now, over time, once they were beginning to enjoy mathematics and feel successful in mathematics, then there might be something I um, gradually introduce. And even then, when introducing them, favorite phrase alert, I would use depressurizing strategies to say, look, I don't think this is a question that we're all going to immediately get the answer to i just want you to have a play with it see what you can work out see if there are some bits that you can figure out along this maybe you can see where this is going yeah i so yeah i do think there's value in those if i may then just a little bit what what do you think about different cultural approaches to mathematics whereby a set of mathematics teaching apparently begins with a problem where a a group of a group of children are presented with a problem and they deal with it. And then the, the, for want of a better phrase, explicit teaching of a given
2: procedure strategy or way of
1: dealing with things
2: grows from that. There's a few things there. Let, Let me just pick on just before I answer that question. One thing that, that I think you've touched on, which I think is interesting, which is prior to, obviously what I would often do is before a lesson begins, is just reference some of the emotional experiences that children may have as they're problem solving. Because I, I think that when they experience them, it could often be too late. But if you're able to say, you know, I'm going to give you a, a, a task here. Initially, you might feel a sense of excitement or, or there could be some a feeling of confusion or frustration. And it will be interesting to see what you do when you meet those emotions. I think that has real value. Um, and often when children are experiencing those emotions, almost less value. So I think that's a really interesting thing. It, it, in looking at the different cultural approaches, I think that we'd have to think if we're starting with a problem where, where we don't think the children will have success, I guess that we, we have to think about, well, what's the what's the underlying idea there? What, what's the purpose? And perhaps it's so that children feel a need to receive the advice that you will then provide or to see the need for the scaffold. And how it builds up to the to the task, because I I think that if you're going to give children a, a problem and you don't believe they have the tools to be able to answer that, that's where the value comes. So I guess it, it does that have value for the children that you're that you're teaching, and will that be the the response that will be invoked in them? Now I have to say that I in trying to give all children success in problem solving, I believe that children persevere for longer if they have high initial success. I think that them from my experience when they when they are unsuccessful initially that doesn't lead to them persevering for longer later on so my preference is actually just kind of deconstructing and building the precursor skills rather than giving a children a task that they aren't successful in it, it might be though that for the children that you teach and I, I don't just talk to you chris there but but i kind of invite that to the listener if you like the children that you teach this will this will enable them to see the importance of the of the scaffolding that they'll then receive, and and neither you know I wouldn't dismiss the value that's there either. Quite often, when I'm demonstrating without a textbook in place,
0: I will often use a problem, you know, normally a worded problem, as the vehicle for the mathematics, because quite often I'm trying to support teachers who've identified you know a, a paucity of problem solving as they're focused, you know, they, they really want to get better at including it. And I think utilising, you know, example problem pairs as a first step can be really useful. Now, I think you're describing, Chris, a more open-ended problem, which pupils will struggle on, and then they will, you know, be skillfully guided towards the mathematics. And I think when I think of that, I think it's akin to the skill required to be a really effective early years teacher and it's not something that we should tackle lightly you know I think it takes a really accomplished teacher to get the most from that kind of situation but if you wanted to dip your toe in the water start with example problem pairs with those common problem structures that we encounter and then build from there but I think you know in any school where they're supporting their teachers and they're prioritizing what's important, you know, and and to an extent risk taking, you know, hopefully you will have that environment where perhaps you could try that with a subject leader or someone who has embedded that kind of practice themselves. And then you can reflect on it, you know, perhaps through some sort of um, collaborative teaching over an extended period of time, you know, where you, but I, I do think it's something that shouldn't be taken lightly because, you know, it's um It doesn't come naturally to us. And there are so many variables that it's well worth thinking through very, very, very carefully.
2: I almost think one of the biggest questions that we have, let's say as a subject leader, if you're looking at your maths policy, it will often start with a grand statement and a a noble statement about what we aspire children to be able to do as mathematicians and and generally as problem solvers. But then to what extent does that policy actually outwork? And this is the pedagogy that enables that to happen. And that, I think, is, is just so important, that, that what we're able to do is establish, is establish that this is the pedagogy that will enable children to get there and then to work together uh, as with teachers on the absolute complexity of how do we best manifest that in the classroom. And I think that having that vision for this is what problem solving looks like and these are the approaches that we take to, to break that down, and we work on that together is key, because what you'll often see in that maths policy is then, you know, we, we we aspire to these really noble aims. And then the policy nails down. This is how we develop fluency. And actually being able to articulate, actually, this is how we get there to build children as problem solvers, I think, is just an enormously important question.
0: I think if people take one thing from this episode, it should be that, you know, that you've, you've hit the nail
1: right on the head, Gareth. I think it says a lot about the importance of problem solving and the idea that mathematics is, sorry, that problem solving is at the very core of mathematics, that our conversation today, just touching upon this subject, has moved from the debatable nature of generic skills to the idea of curriculum sequencing to... Emotional literacy, which I think was arguably my favorite part of the conversation. It's interesting how much of the conversation went back, at points to the skills of a teacher to develop children's emotional literacy in, in mathematics. I would imagine that we want to leave some of this juicy topic for another time. So that being the case, I will hand back to you, Karen.
0: Yeah, like you say, Chris, it's and you've said a couple of times, Garrett, it's, it's been absolutely fascinating. And I think. It's definitely something that we'll come back to time and time again. And it, it's something the more I read about it, and the more I test out in my classes and with my teachers and things, you know, the more I realise how little I know. And, you know, and, and it is something I want to get as, you know, as good as as possible. You know, so I think all I said to say is thank you very much, Gareth. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. And everyone at home. Until next time. Thanks for listening.